Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Podcast. I'm James Price, and I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with talented professionals in the cybersecurity market. We bring together the best technical leaders to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about DevSecOps, integrating security into the development process. Before we get into the discussion, let's make some introductions. So, Seth, would you like to introduce yourself firstly? Absolutely, and uh, thank you, James, for coordinating this and bringing everyone together. I'm really excited for today's session. Uh, my name is Seth Kirshner. I'm currently the AppSec Manager or Pillar Manager for Double Verify. We're a publicly traded global ad tech company, uh, and so it's nice to meet everyone. Brilliant. Thanks, Seth. I'm Paolo. Hey, everybody. My name is Paolo Delundo. Happy to be here as well. Uh, I am the Director of Cybersecurity at The Motley Fool. Um, I guess keep passion. I love playing chess um, and I'm trying to like blend that into, uh, you know, the, the lessons that I've learned in chess into everything I do. So, Brilliant. Cheers, Paolo. And Paul, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Lead Application Security Engineer at City National Bank, um, one out of LA. And um, one of my key passions is flying and learning how to do leadership. And how do you manage teams to do the right thing? That's a key passion there. The views discussed by me, Paul Wolk, are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer, CNB. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. I'm finally Brandon. Yeah. Uh, hi, all. Just same. Excited to be here with the, the rest of you guys. I think it's going to be a, a great chat today. Um, yeah, right now I'm, I'm spending some time trying to get my own startup going. We'll see how that goes. Pretty exciting stuff. Uh, but you know, I've been doing security for, I don't know, for a long time. I think I started hacking video games when I was in high school, you know, to get more ammo. So I've been doing this for a while. Um, I mean, that kind of hints at my, some of my hobbies. Uh, I used to be big into game development. Um, you know, and recently I've been doing a lot of crypto work, you know, the crypto industry. There's a lot of fun, exciting, uh, technology opportunities over there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Thanks all for the introduction. So let's move on to the topic. So you all have a question on DevSecOps mentioned integrating security into the development process. I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reason behind it. Then each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the question. So let's start with Seth and your question, please. Great. Uh, to start off to t today's conversation, uh, my question is pretty much around at what point do you move from gaining visibility in your pipeline and identifying security vulnerabilities to then blocking or introducing permit to deploy gateways uh, throughout your pipeline to prevent um, developers or other engineers or software engineers in your company from be able, being able to commit code. Um, so that, that's sort of part one of the question. And then afterwards, uh, as sort of follow-ups is, is there certain maturity that's required in order for you to to move from stage one to stage two? Um, and then if so, how do you begin to measure uh, that that transition as well? <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so, so here are a couple of thoughts. I think in general, it's better to block if possible, right? Obviously you can't do that for everything. But as you know, if an, a, a problem is introduced into your resource, your resources, for example, it takes so much more time to remediate, right? Chasing after the owners of that resource, having them fix that thing, right? That could take like weeks, if not months. So if it's possible to block, absolutely. Like that, that is the best case scenario. But obviously that's not always possible, right? Um, you have to be careful in, in where you block, right? Because if you're blocking in a here like production, then 
but potentially you could bring some services down and that's not good either, right? So I think you have to be a little bit smart about it. Um, you can block in certain tiers or certain instances, um, but not everything will lead to that. So it, it's a very, I, I guess it's, at the end of the day, my, my answer is it really depends on the situation. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and it comes up quite often. Where do we block on authenticate or um, in the DevOps pipeline? My answer kind of comes down to you just have to have a good reason for blocking. And if the automated tools, you could do it with automated tools. What's your reason for blocking on an automated tool? The, the common things people do is, you know, your count goes up in your scan results. Okay, that's great. Um, does that really mean anything? I don't know. It depends upon the tool. Uh, my thoughts are always, if whatever, if you come back to the idea of, okay, what's a good reason? Then, um, and if you have someone looking at it and they block, so in your build process, and they can raise a flag, that's also useful too for certain applications. And you come back to good reasons and then risk-based approach, so... Some applications, yeah, you do want to block for and others you don't. It depends upon what your goals are too. So if it, my big answer is kind of ha hand-waving, quite a bit of hand-waving, but it's based on those concepts of, you know, got to have a good reason to block. And then secondly, you know, risk-based approach. Um, and then, okay, so then the, the maturity part of that question, absolutely maturity is so important there. You can't just stick a scanner on your pipeline and then throw throw it if you don't have any high findings and then you can't have people on the other side so let's say you have you have a SAS scanner and the internet runs quickly and you get a bunch of results well then you have to have someone to manage that process once the results are found and that takes maturity that takes people that takes smart people real smart people to be able to go through those results and say hey is this a real finding or hey this is nothing so that's just an example so that yeah absolutely you need maturity before you can block uh, that's really important okay I think that's all I can say about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do an extended podcast. <laughs> yeah, this this is a really good this is a really good point to bring up this this issue of maturity and you know when can you block and and things like that in the DevOps or at least I say in the Dev lifecycle. Um, Paul, yeah, I'm going to agree with Paul on this. Uh, it in that it it hinges on the maturity. Um, if if you just you know if you walk into a company and, and they have a you know they have a product and they're developing it and you bring this appsec process in and step one is you know, we're going to block all builds, you know, on a security scan. Well, did, did you actually tell anybody how to do a security scan? Do they know how to scan their code? Is it built in the pipeline yet? Um, but never mind that, even if that's in place, is there a process for them to mitigate, do the, mitigate the issues? Does the team even know that there is an issue to mitigate? So, um, yeah, to make that transition from I'm looking in the pipeline and I see findings to, okay, we can block builds or block the process in those findings. You, you have to have a mature process of some kind. And and I know a lot of folks like bristle at the word process, and I'm not talking, we don't, we don't need like a, a complex GRC process, but you need to talk to somebody in engineering and let them know that if you see this thing, here's the step you take. You know, you need to do the classic, you know, AppSec training. You have to train people how to do it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough one though. This is, this is the goal, right? To get everyone from just putting findings out there in the ether somewhere to reacting to them and, and then be able to, Everyone agree that yeah, we want to block. We want to block a build if it doesn't meet our requirements, and that's the real sign of maturity right there. Is that you have everyone on board. It's not just the security team driving that decision. Yeah, I guess so. As a follow up question, it sounds like some of you guys, or if not all of you guys, have experience putting in the permit to deploy gateways already. 
Uh, so when did you decide to make that change? And did you make that change before it got pushed into production? Or did you make that change and start blocking at the merge request or pull request uh, earlier on in, in the pipeline? Yeah, so I mean, I guess it depends on what uh, what tier you're working on again, uh, would be my answer, right? If it's in production, then anything that we have a we have a company rule that anything that will get merged into production needs to come from a IEC um, an infrastructure as code type you know situation, right? Like you can't do click ops in production because that's not reproducible. So if um, you know if 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 we're talking about production, then you know IEC all the way. But on lower tiers, like let's say development, you know you we still want to have effective guardrails. For example, right, like the classic S3 bucket exposed to the world, right? That's something that, you know, we, you know, on, on one hand, we want to be able to allow developers to um, run fast and do development as fast as they possibly could, right? But we want to make sure that there are effective guardrails so that if something like that happens, that's immediately blocked and uh, remediated. Right. So on lower tiers, we've uh, we've resulted to uh, finding tools that will help us auto remediate those things and not rely on. And since we can't like, you know, IEC is not applied everywhere, right? Because like in development, people are developing. Then you need some other control, such as that auto remediation. Yeah, actually, Paolo, I was I was thinking almost the exact same thing. Um, I. I I've done this at companies. We've we block on PRs or MRs on merge requests pretty much only for secrets and code. I mean, you just you don't want those things in your code base anywhere. So it's really easy to block. It's pretty easy to get people around that too. Um, yeah, you have a false positive issue depending on your tool lane, but again, that's just an education thing, and and most developers get around that pretty quick. Um, after that, totally agree with you, Paolo. Like we, you want you know companies exist to ship products, not ship appsec. So you want those developers. You want to have that velocity. You want to let them ship when they can or not, not just ship but iterate on their you know you want them to get their code out so they can uh, iterate and collaborate um yeah now when it comes to security findings later in the process that that comes down to a maturity level is your company able to respond you know to have those issues fixed before they before they ship before they get to production um of, of course ideally they should be but we all know that not every kind you know not every company is is making those decisions before code gets to production yeah, it's uh, shift left as far as you can, uh, but yeah, maintain the speed, the development, that's the trick. I tend to think it makes sense, yeah, after, we like to block on, on uh, or at least places, places I've worked, we like to work, we like to block after development, but you can still implement your tools far left and raise the flag there too, so that's kind of nice. You want developers to be empowered, that's probably the biggest thing there. As long as you're empowering developers, I think it's a good thing to do. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul, and thanks, everyone, for the input on that first question. Uh, let's move on to your question, Paolo, please. Yeah, so this one's a fun one. Um, everyone's seen ChatGPD in the news lately. I'm curious how it's going to affect the application security industry and specifically DevSecOps. So if you could give me your thoughts on whether it will affect it, and if so, how? Yeah, so this is a really great question. Um, I've definitely been spending a decent amount of time with 
GPT in general and messing around with both the AI as well as uh, GPT-4, which is which is fantastic at writing code, for example. Um, and so one of the one of the items that I think it will 100% impact is you've already started to see uh, early stage startups, seed stage startups emerge that are leveraging GPT within their environment. So this could be for SaaS scanning, it could be for API, it could be for advanced DAST. Uh, they already had an introduced BERT GPT. Um, so they have a plugin for BERT that can already you know, leverage a lot of GPT uh, functionality. And so the reality is though, simultaneously as it, as it helps the defender, it's also leveraging and helping attackers as well. So now, um, whether you're on bug bounty and you're doing it for good purposes or white hat, gray hat, depending on where you sit in the spectrum, right? Um, you can have nefarious uh, use cases as well emerge from it. So I think simultaneously, yes, uh, it's going to impact DevSecOps. Yes, uh, there's new types of technology already emerging that are in, that's becoming significantly enhanced uh, leveraging GPT. Um, and I do think that there's a good and bad side of it. And I think my last piece of it is, you know, I think we're all quietly waiting to see how privacy looks. Um, will they be able to localize the LLM models to be able to effectively use the tool without sharing any proprietary information from your environment? And simultaneously, um, will companies stop locking? Because I think right now, a lot of companies are taking that initial approach, like we don't want to use it at all, period. It's blocked. Good luck. And we're not going to be part of that conversation for now. So th those are my initial opening statements. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the answer is yes. It's absolutely going to change it. Um, I mean, if it, it, I'm, I'm sure some of you play with it. Paul, uh, Seth, like you said, you've used it. And this is 100% this is going to change software development and every aspect of it. Um, even on my side projects now, it's if, when I forget to use ChatGPT, I'm significantly slower in my productivity. You know, when I remember, oh yeah, that's right. I've got this like, I, I, I stopped using search engines. Like, why am I using a search engine? I can, I can just get the answer to my question. I don't have to look for the answer. Um, yeah, and insecure, it, absolutely insecurity. I've, I've, I've already prototyped some sort of, I wouldn't call it a SaaS, but I've definitely used it to, you know, like reverse engineer obfuscated code to look at, you know, large sections of code and just tell me the gist of it. And um, I mean, and shockingly, it's actually finding vulnerabilities. I, I, I'm not, I don't trust it. You know, the AI still has this like major hallucination problem while it'll just start making up answers that it thinks are right. But on occasions, it's found some pretty, uh, complex vulnerabilities, which just surprised me. Um, so yeah, the, the, it's definitely going to change it. And, you know, Seth, you talked about, um, you know, localizing these models. Yeah. That's all that's already happening. Um, I'm, I'm in some other group and they're, they're just hardcore into playing this. And, and that's something we're looking at is already training our own models on our own machines with commodity hardware. It's not chat GPT four, but it's, it's somewhere between 3.5 and four, which is actually itself mind blowing that I can, I can do that. So yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I feel like this, this is a whole podcast itself. There's no question about it, right? Like Paulo, great, great that you brought this up. Um, yeah, this is a huge topic. Thanks, Brandon. And yeah, I'm sure our listeners will be looking out for a ChatGPT exclusive episode in the near future. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. How does it impact DevSecOps? Um, two things I can think of off the top of my head is, you know, you're going to have code being developed quicker and code that we're not going to be able to understand. And that's going to be, we need to check for that DevSecOps. So that's kind of part one. And part two is, um, is the detection part of it too. Um, we haven't seen it shake out yet, but I'm sure we're going to have these large language models that are going to be good at detecting things or reading code. And I think Brandon, you already talked a little bit about that, finding vulnerabilities in code or deobfuscating code. Uh, that's that's a 
sweet stuff in terms of finding vulnerabilities that I'm, I'm excited about. Also, we're four months into Jet GPT 3. Um, so, I mean, this is, it's going to change. It's going to change so quickly, so fast. Um, we have no idea what, I, I, I wish I knew more, but I, it's just, the story's going to change so quickly over the next year or two. Um, those, there's just such powerful tools, but when you have a powerful tool, it's just looking back in history. If you have a big, powerful tool come out, you have the attackers use them, but typically the defenders are more, more capable at using them than the attackers. Doesn't mean the attackers can't find ways in niches to break in. So they probably will, but we'll be more effective at using them, but you know, it's still going to shake out in a way. It's going to be interesting. Paul, you brought up a really great point. Um, I don't know if you meant if you meant to or not, but um, you know sometimes DevOps engineers, and this isn't this isn't a, a, a negative, but you know their focus is operations and cloud, and sometimes there's like a big D DevOps or a big O DevOps person, right? If they're the big O, then they they understand cloud infrastructure and servers. They don't understand the code very well, um, or at least not as well as the engineer. Never mind if you have a great engineering team, they're going to be writing some superb, elegant code that probably no one else knows understands. Yeah, so I hadn't thought about that. That you know, this these these machine learning, these these GPT, these AI tools are going to help us like understand the code and hopefully elicit the architecture and designs that matter to DevOps and to Sec DevOps. You know, I don't I don't necessarily care specifically how it's implemented, but I want to know a high level what is this thing doing? Where is it talking to? You know, it, those those like high level architecture diagrams. Yeah, I think if we can get that stuff out of out of AI, that's that's going to be a game changer because. How much money do we spend on tools already trying to get that information? Yeah, it's amazing. Good. I'm, I'm really cool you brought it up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and so just to add a piece of it, I think it will be very interesting if you can take an architecture model that you've created and do auto threat modeling against it. So shift all the way left in your pipeline. Like you feed GPT the diagram of your architecture, whether in a mock-up of it or current state. And then from there, it starts to auto create a stride methodology, for example, and look at, hey, how is, or, or even more real threats, um, what could potential actors do uh, based on the way that you've configured this? And then also begin to identify, are there any improvements in your architecture that you can meet? meet? For example, let's say you replace a router with a firewall and add in some additional granularity or control, like will GPT be able to assist you in that? Maybe even make the changes for you at some point? Uh, so I think we're at a, a really interesting uh, pivot in both the industry, not only on the developer side, but also on the security side too. Yeah, it's, that's a fun thought where we start using uh, <laughs> large language models for architecture. And then the question that always comes up here after this is, does anybody understand what the large language model did? Like, do we have any idea? <laughs> Are we... It's, yeah, so I don't know. It's, that's a good question. When is the point when the, they're making decisions for us? Because technology is already making decisions for us. But what is it? What is it when we stop understanding it? And then that becomes a that becomes a huge that becomes a philosophical question. That's really hard one to answer. Anyways, that's all I have. <laughs> yeah, I just love to, I I would just like to say that that is a great idea, and I think a startup founder is you know wringing his hands right now because that is cer certainly going to happen so hopefully you get royal for that <laughs> absolutely um brandon i think it's a double meet <laughs> yeah i do it again yeah real quick paul um nobody knows nobody knows what what the eye is thinking and yes 
I say that tongue in cheek, but the problem is it's it's literal too. Literally, nobody understands how it gets to the. It's a big problem, but it's still it's kind of funny from our perspective. <laughs> it's so smart, but no one knows why. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, everyone. And our penultimate question that comes from Paul. So, Paul, the floor is yours. All right, cool. So, my question is: We always think of in, in terms of AppSec and DevOps, DevSecOps. We always think about like shifting left, shifting left. Um, which to me always ends up saying. We end up attacking developers and say, you need to learn this. You need to learn that. You need to stop writing vulnerabilities in your code, blah, blah, blah. But to me, I always think of developers as kind of like one piece of the puzzle because you have a lot of code that comes in and they use a lot of stuff and they're kind of like one foot stop and then they end up producing code. And we try to put everything because there are way or there are tools out there that we can shift further left because I'm interested. I'm really interested in what we can do further left or it even gets the developer to try to stop vulnerabilities from being introduced in our environment before it gets to developed. Yeah, as, as a former developer myself, I really appreciate this question. Um, it feels like developers have so much responsibility nowadays and, you know, they're responsible for security, for performance, you know, for 10 other things. And at some point, you know, <laughs> I feel like a revolution might happen because it's just getting too much. Um, so, and, and this is sort of like the whole idea behind threat modeling, right? Where you're shifting even farther left, um, which doesn't require the, you know, it doesn't necessarily require developers to be solely responsible for that because that's an all team effort, right? So if you're able to diagram your architecture, anybody can identify issues um, even before any line of code is written. So I think that, um, you know, most mature security teams have some level of this in their, in their workflow. So yeah, I, I totally commiserate. And that is something that, um, you know, I think will help. I think the industry as a whole is starting to come together, both from the public and private side to enhance shifting left even further. Uh, so a really good example of this is uh, April 12th, a little bit over a week ago. Google released their Assured OSS. Uh, so they actually open sourced their Python and I believe one of the language uh, libraries that developers can freely use now that are relatively locked down. So rather than starting from a state where it's sort of uncertain and chaotic, they begin to now have a framework where they know they're at least working with a lockdown version of a package. And then that way, as they begin to write code, they have a less chance of introducing more vulnerabilities than could could already exist. Um, so as not only Google works in this space to open source and create more languages and, and release more of their assured packages, I think other uh, large tech companies and other industry leaders that are trying to promote public and private partnerships, such as ISACs potentially may work together to try to bring uh, additional resources available so that way developers begin introducing less code or less vulnerable code over time and writing safer code um, in, in that area as well. Yeah, I'm, it's re I'm really glad you brought this up, Paul. Um, developers have a lot of stuff. I mean, we ask them to do testing, uh, in some cases, quality assurance and, and security, and then we just keep layering the security on because um, now we're asking them to do effectively DevOps stuff as well with infrastructure as code, depending on what that dev is doing. I, I can't, it's, it's crazy. I don't say I can't imagine. I can't imagine I, you know, I work my own tools and it's, it's a burden. Um, yeah, this, uh, Seth, you, you, you touched on it. You, with Google releasing that, I don't know if I want to call it a toolkit, but those, those bundles or whatever you want to call them. But, um, 
getting getting secure by default options. You know, we've been talking about this for decades uh, and everywhere, and that's really where we need to ro- go. Uh, Netflix Netflix coined the term uh, "paved roads" just a few years ago, and it's it's secure by default. They didn't invent anything, but they they kind of captured it in a great way to say what we need to do is is provide lanes for the developers to just hey just get onto this toolkit using this CI/CD pipeline. And and that's it. You don't really have to think about security anymore. We'll we'll take care of it for you. So I don't know if that's shifting left. It feels like it's shifting really far left because it, it's even before the developer has to worry about code. But you know, within the life cycle, it's actually somewhere in the the development phase. You know, where they make these choices or the design phase. But nonetheless, the choices were made before, and they don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, it's great. It's great stuff. I, I problem with paved roads is is um. It takes a, it does take a certain amount of uh, maturity, not just for the security team, but for the organization. And that there has to be room for the security team to create these roads or work with engineering to create these roads. And there has to be uh, the kind of rigor within the engineering discipline to have their teams use those 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 roads. I, I've worked at several companies, and, and some companies are really strict in that regard. And in other companies, you know, it's it's almost the wild west. Engineers choose any technology they want to develop their features with no re- restriction. You know, how do you operate in that environment as a security team trying to do paved roads? You know, you can't. So, um, it's it's a dream, it's ideal, but it does require a lot of maturity within the entire company. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting. I can even see with the way I asked that question and why I picked that question. I'm definitely someone in the DevOps world who's a big D, not a big O. Uh, so yeah, I tend to think of DevOps in terms of the development, and then I also think of DevOps in terms of what, how can you make it easier for someone to build a process? And yeah, it requires maturity in order to get to that paved road sort of thing. Um, I'm almost hoping that there's some tools out there which which you don't have to get to the paved road maturity. Uh, I know it's it's probably a dream come true, but or a dream right now. But I hope people are working on it. Uh, I don't know. That's probably my thoughts on that. It sounds lots of really good answers there too. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the the tool aspect. I don't. It's not great when a when a company or a team has to make a bespoke solution, you know, for their company. It's it's much better when we can all organize around a standard or or just a, a it doesn't have to be like a technical standard, you know, but just something that we can all as a de facto standard use. Gets more visibility, has more time to iterate, and you know, I'd love to see something like that's great idea. You have no idea what that would look like though. What would that even look like? You know, a tool that that creates the paper for you. Be amazing. Thanks, everyone. And our final question on today's episode comes from Brandon. So, Brandon, if you'd like to tell the listeners and the panelists your question, please. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's actually really good. The way I wrote it uh, here, let me I'll tell you guys what I've got here. It says, uh, "How far down in the development lifecycle and the dev process do we push supply chain security uh, for our builds?" And when I wrote this, I actually had kind of two points in mind. One of them is, yeah, this is a technical question. Like how far do we push this? Do we, like, who do we trust? Do we trust, can we trust our build tools? Like, do we not trust those? Can we, can we not trust the operating system? Do we not trust the cloud? Like how far down do we go? But also it highlights this, um, I've kind of seen this conflict in who, who actually owns this part of the, the CICD pipeline, uh, DevSecOps, is it DevOps? Is it AppSec? You know, cause AppSec owns the code and, and building the code seems like an important part of it, but often the CI/CD pipeline is, you know, there's a deployment aspect to it. And so, you know, code is deployed that, that feels very far out of the AppSec realm. Yeah. So, the, you know, that's, that's kind of the question. It's kind of two questions. Um, you can answer it however, you can answer however you like, but, um, you can see where I'm going with this. Like, can we trust our builds and then who's responsible 
really for what aspects do we trust? Yeah, it's uh, an excellent question. I think it's a point of topic that's becoming very popular today. Um, you have, you know, some standards out there that are pushing for uh, signing everything, like salsa, for example, with obviously different maturities along the the scale there. And I think simultaneously, the who is responsible piece, I think, varies tremendously by an organization. Um, at least at my company, from an AppSec perspective, we're here to advise in many cases, and we're here to push best practices. Um, but I'm not going to be able to enable or start requiring. Uh, code signing in my pipeline myself, right? It requires significant buy-in, not just from my DevOps team, uh, but pretty much from all my developers because there's a portion of it where it's like, okay, it's one piece to enable it, but then you have to train everyone. Like, what does that actually mean? Are you going to then put any guardrails in place to prevent, for example, if they forget to do it or it's not automatic or um, you're missing you know, a piece of it? And then I think in the same regards, do you then prevent them from moving fast and innovating if, for example, they're not allowed to use uh, third-party open source libraries or packages that aren't signed? And so then you start to come into the question, you know, are you actually slowing them down by securing them? Uh, and I think this is a, a really good point, really good question. And, and quite frankly, I think the, the whole industry has a, a little while to figure out what's the best approach, but great question. Yeah, the only thing I'd like to add is you have to ask yourself what their threat model is, right? Because not every company has the same threats as you do. And so, you know, for the more sensitive clients, uh, customers who need that level of security, then absolutely maybe, you know, hardware, you know, is in the picture, right? But for like a company like myself, for example, I can't justify that level of scrutiny just because there are a lot of operational headaches that I can see happening. Um, so I just think that before you even answer that question, you have to know uh, what you're trying to mitigate. I got an interesting, I got a weird way to look at it, this one, and it's kind of, uh, and it's it's going to end up with saying one of the big problems we have in our industry right now. So the first part is uh, we break, we discover vulnerabilities in two ways and issues in our code in two ways, it seems like. We either look at the code that we develop or the system that we're using and trust the world to find issues in that code. So that's kind of like the two pieces. Now for the second part, we usually call that ops, like server building, software packages and that sort of thing. Um, kind of a weird thing about that is, oh, it's kind of a weird topic to get into, but um, we're using a lot of open source software and we're trusting people to build that software properly. Now for whatever system we have, let's say we're using a Tomcat server, we're trusting whoever develops the Topcat servers and open source software to do that properly. Um, now we come back to this question is we know how to develop software securely. Like that, that's actually kind of a solved solution at this problem. People know how to develop. We have SDLCs, SSDLCs. We have that stuff. It's not cheap. It's not easy. Um, but here's the thing is not everybody's doing that. Um, especially, and I pick on commercial applications, commercial software, they're not doing that. Not everybody is. Uh, even if you pay someone a lot of money, they may not be doing it. They're not going to tell you that they're not doing it. They're going to say everything's secure, but they're not going to say that. And the same thing for open source software. When you have one guy writing a big piece of software, he's not doing SSDLC properly. Uh, he just doesn't have the time. She does. So you have this problem where we don't know a lot of... So, okay, breaking that up, 99% of the software that we run, if you're, if you're a development organization writing software, let's say, I don't know, I'm picking on Netflix. We'll just say Netflix and say they are depending upon a lot of other people to write code for their 
their system, even though they probably write a ton of code, a ton of high quality code, I would expect. Uh, don't know what their systems look like that. I'm not going to endorse Netflix, but uh, what I'm saying is that even for a system like that, they're still using a lot of code. So the question is, where do we involve the trust? Well, we need to actually have a system for rating the code that we're using, and we don't have that system right now. That system has not been developed. We're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to stop gap it right now with codes coming into our system and say, hey, we know this one's got a CVE, so we need to upgrade. Or this, it's, it's, I don't know, it's it's kind of like a, it's the half solution. It's not the real solution that we need. Uh, and it's it's what everybody's doing right now is they're, they have systems in place to look at all the code that we don't manage to see what's going out there and try to block it. I don't know, that's kind of a weird way of looking at this, but that's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, P Paul, um... You brought you you mentioned a really interesting point at the end, and this was about rating software uh, for its security. It's, yeah, it's it, it, it's a huge problem. We have CVSS, which only rates specific vulnerabilities, and I don't want to say people universally dislike it, but we know that it could be better for sure. Um, I know that the OpenSSF has been working on something. Uh, I see Seth nodding his head. Uh, it's a uh, I think it's a good start. It's it's got some problems. Um, I've I even tried to you know implement a kind of way to prioritize how a team might review things based on some of those scores. But um, yeah, I think you're right. We need, we just need a way to rate software and its risk. If, if, if that's even possible, if we could just, you know, broadly look at a, a, a piece of software and say that is high risk, that, that would be a huge, huge benefit to AppSec teams and DevSecOps teams everywhere. Yeah. That's an interesting point that you made there, Paul, about, you know, the current state of the art, just being a halfway solution. And I'm curious, just from my own edification, like, what is it not meeting? Like, where does it fall short, in your opinion? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I think this is this is kind of a tough one to look at, because the, the way I look at it right now is we're, we're trying to catch the problem after the problem was already created years earlier. So, like, for example, if we bring... An example would be um, Log4j, for example. It, it was... I don't know the life cycle of that vulnerability, so I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing that it was developed years before it was actually implemented. So the root cause of the issue was years before when it developed, when the developer developed it, they did through the proper threat models and all that other stuff. So our problem here is the root cause of the problem was them creating vulnerability. It wasn't that we didn't detect it, it's that it was developed in the first place. So the root cause that we're dealing with right now is people are developing software and they're creating insecure software that we are using in our environment. How do we stop insecure software from getting into our environment? Um, we know how to develop software, our software securely, but we don't know how to stop insecure stuff from getting into our environment. And the solutions that we have right now, state-of-the-art solutions, uh, you can have yourself your paved road and that actually might be a decent solution, but the challenge you're gonna have there is you're also paved road. You're only allowed on the roads. You're not allowed to explore outside of that. And that can be, depending upon your business model, that can be a great way to solution it. can also be a way to stifle innovation and creativity. It depends upon which business. For some businesses, that's a great solution. For other businesses, maybe not. Um, that's that's an executive decision. I'd probably bump my pay grade. So. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say a big thanks to all our guests today for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Seth, who is the Application Security Manager at Double Variety. Paolo, who is the Director of Application Security at The Motley Fool. Paul, who's the VP of Application Security Engineering Lead at the City National Bank. And finally, Brandon, who is an Application Security Leader within this space. 
And finally, if you are hiring for new technical roles or you're looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch uh, with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, please feel free to drop me a message. I'm James Price and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at james.price at evolutionjobs.us or visit us at evolutionjobs.com. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. Hope you can join us next time.